All right, guys, welcome. Welcome to New Philadelphia Church Hillside. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is John Michael Becker, and uh, I'm the lay pastor at the Itaewon uh, Church, uh, New Philadelphia Itaewon over there. And if you guys didn't notice, oh man, I got three. This is good. I'm going to drink a lot today. Um, if you guys didn't notice, there are no staff in the house today. Uh, I would say hallelujah, but, but this is being podcasted. So... Since uh, I am the lay pastor, and, and for those who don't know what lay means, uh, lay pastor, I, I realize some people didn't, don't know what that means. It means that uh, I'm not on staff, I'm not paid. Uh, this is just volunteer, volunteer-based. What I really do is uh, I direct an orphanage ministry here in Seoul called Jerusalem Ministry, and uh, I serve in an orphanage uh, during the week near Gimpo Airport. And uh, it's just you know an honor to be able to speak here. I've been going to this church for five years now, and uh, I'm also a deacon here. And since I've been given authority over the church uh, today, I'm going to dub today Deacon Day. And uh, I'd like the deacons to stand up. Uh, Deacon Jung, Mijong, Brady, Anita. Come on, guys. Yeah, stand up. Let's give them a hand. Brady, come on out. Receive your honor. That's right. Yeah, and if, if you look in here, it's almost all deacons. So, uh, David, uh, Diddy. Uh, you're, you're, you're fired for today. I'm going to have Mijong uh, do announcements. Okay? So the deacons uh, can take... That's uh, a joke. All right. Daddy, you're coming up. I know. You, you thought he'd get some, some rest. Deacon day. All right. Let me say a prayer uh, before getting started. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much uh, for today, Lord. And uh, we thank you for the sunshine, Lord. And we thank you for just the reminders of your grace and your love over us. And... God, I just pray that you bless this time. Uh, we just bless your presence in this place. And Holy Spirit, we pray, continue to come. Continue to reveal your light and your glory and your love in this place. Just bless the words, Lord. Let them just flow from your mouth, Lord God, into, Lord, your children's hearts, Lord. Let us receive all that you have for us. We thank you so much, God. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, cool. So uh, I actually, uh, I prepared this message for the prayer meeting, um, Friday Fire in December. And it was supposed to be the first Friday Fire in Itaewon at our new sanctuary. But I found out at midnight, the night before, that it had been changed. And that uh, Aaron was actually going to preach. So it's kind of funny. Uh, so the way I wrote this, it was more at, at that time. But even as I was writing it, I was thinking that this isn't a word for Friday Fire. Because usually, if, if you go to Friday Fires when I speak, I tend to speak about really heavy uh, things about justice uh, at Friday Fire. And I really felt this was more of a word for the church on Sunday. It doesn't mean it's a light word, um, but uh, it's not as, it's not about the rape of Nanking or, or something like that. Uh, love's definition. Uh, that's, that's what I'm going to be preaching on. And um, it was actually a couple months ago now that I preached a joint prayer meeting and uh, I preached a message called God Over the Darkness. And after the message, uh, was leading the, the people in a time of inner healing, and it was altar calls. And I've, I've had the privilege of leading different altar calls here and on the missions field, and being a pastor or being one of the prayer counsel, counselors, you're able to see everyone out there. And uh, I'm not staring at everyone, you know, when I lead the altar calls, but now and then I will look out and just, you know, to see how people are receiving. And I'll look out, and oftentimes there's some people that are just soaking it up. They are just just getting deeply touched, they're crying, they're laughing, they're just hands up, you know, they're really, they're really getting in touch with the Lord. And then I look at others, and they're just kind of sitting there, you know, looking around, 
And uh, it's just, you know, okay, another altar call. Let's see, you know, where this goes. And there's not really that touch. And it's weird because I know God's presence is here. And I see God touching people so dramatically. And yet I see others that it doesn't seem like God's there at all. They're just kind of going through it. And what I've noticed for, for baby Christians and for new Christians in the church and people who just join our church, they tend to be very sensitive to the spirit. And they just eat up altar calls. And uh, every altar call, they run up and they get flattened. You know, the glory of God's all over them. And they're just, wow, they're loving it. But as time passes, for some of them, it's just, it's not the same. You know, and they'll come up for an altar call and, okay, you know, received. And they'll go, say, there's not, you know, crazy manifestations or, or anything like that. And I was just reflecting on that a lot in the past couple months. And um, I was thinking about how we mature as Christians and how it also relates to how we mature as people. Because, you know, when you're children, when you're a little child, you tend to just receive very easily. You receive love very easily. Just, it comes very easy. And for me, when I was little, I had no problem with my mom hugging me, with my mom saying she loves me, doing any of that. It doesn't matter who I'm around, you know, at school, with friends, whatever. And it was cool. I'm loved by my mom. Okay, great. You know, get, get the hugs. But then as I started to reach the teenage years, something weird happened up here. And I didn't want the love anymore. I, I didn't want her to show the love anymore. It became awkward and embarrassing. And I don't know why it was, but, but that's what started happening up here. And I started to distance myself. And it wasn't like her love went away in any way. Her love was still there, but I was distancing myself. And my mom, she's smart. Uh, she picked up on it even before I, I picked up on it. And so she created a, a secret signal uh, to show love. Like, aww. Okay, and uh, so that when I'm with my friends, I don't have to worry about her giving me a hug or like saying, you know, Joe Michael, I love you, you know, anything like that. Like, no, you know, get away. Instead, what she would do is she would just tap her cheek twice with her index finger. That was the way I would know. And uh, it's it's pretty good. When you guys have kids, do it once they hit their teenage years. It's a wise thing. And so I went through that, that weird stage of trying to find my identity, of trying to just figure out myself, trying to fit in with different people and all the distractions that come with the teenage years. And I finally started maturing college. And I was able to overcome all that stuff. And no longer was the signal needed. You know, I would hug my mom in public. And I would tell her that I love her, you know, in front of whoever. There's no problem. And basically, that stage in my life was taken care of. And it made me wonder if, if that's something that, that really happens, you know, to us as well in our walk. That as we're young and we're baby Christians and we receive God's grace and we receive just that forgiveness of sins initially, it's so powerful. And we get touched by his spirit and it's just like, oh, give me more, you know, give me more. And we love it. But then as time passes and our identity is now starting to be formed, who we really are in Christ, you know, what, what are God's plans for my life? What do I really desire? Am I really able to let go of my future and trust in God? All those different things start to block that love and his presence. And what I've, what I've started to understand is that our ability to receive love really comes down to knowing our identity in God and knowing his identity as well. It's both. Knowing our identity in God and knowing his identity. And that his presence is always here. Just like my mom, her love was always there. There was never a time or a period where, oh, she was a little more distant because I'm going through that stage, so she's just stepping back. Really, her heart always wanted to give me a hug. Her heart always wanted to speak love over me. Her heart always wanted to touch me. But it was me and my struggle with my own identity that I, I wasn't allowing it. I, I didn't even want it. And so when I ask you know, different people, you know, what, why, why do you feel you're having trouble receiving God's love? There's often very similar words. And people will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. 
you know, I'm only worthy of, of so much. Uh, I haven't been near God lately. I've, I've been kind of doing my own thing. So I just feel that God is distant. Um, you know, I, God kind of scares me. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I really want to give everything to him. Kind of like the Israelites. When Moses went into the cloud, the Israelites were like, no, that's too scary. We're going to stay back. You know, these, these different reasons why. It's fear or it's guilt or it's shame or it's pride wanting to hold on to themselves. And really what that comes down to is false identity. Because you know that, that when you receive the, the blood of Jesus over you, you are redeemed of all sins. It says, I will forgive them of their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. That he always sees us as pure. And that his name is Emmanuel. His name is God with us. So there's never a moment where, oh yeah, God is distant. That, that's, that's a complete lie. The truth is he's always with us. He's always near. And then, you know, it's a lie to believe that, oh, God, God doesn't want the best for me. You know, I, I still want to hold on to this relationship. Or I still want to hold on to this job. Or I still want to hold on to this dream. And I'm scared that God's going to take it away and make me do something I don't want. But the truth is, is you delight yourself in the Lord. He gives you the desires of your heart. And it's as you start to understand your identity in God, who you are in him, then you realize that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There is absolutely nothing. That's scripture. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And when you know his identity, who God is, then you realize he is always loving you. And he he is always there with you. He is Emmanuel. He is near you. He always sees you as pure. He delights in you. This is just his identity. And it enables you to just receive those hugs, receive that love over and over and over and be touched by him. His love never runs dry. His love never ends. It never fails. And so that's what I actually felt God putting on my heart today to speak about is his love and what love's definition really is. Because I believe if we're going into this year of intimacy, you really got to know what what love is. You need to know your identity and, and God's identity in order to receive that love. But you also need to know how to recognize it. What is God's love? What, what is that love to me, and what is that love through me? Am I really feeling God's love through me, or is it another type of love? Because if you didn't know, there are actually many different types of love. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And in Greek, there are a number of words for love. And today, I'm just going to briefly teach about three Greek words for love, the most well-known words for love in the Greek. And I'm going to start. It's, the three words are eros. Um, forgive me if I'm speaking them wrong. Eros, philia, and agape. I'm going to share about those three words. And the first is eros. And we got the PowerPoint up for that. Did Westfall get it? There you go. Eros. Eros has a lot to do with desire and passion. Okay, it's, it's mostly known to do with sexual love. I'm going to read Webster's Dictionary. It says this, the sum of life-preserving instincts that are manifested as impulses to gratify basic needs such as sex. It's a lovely definition of love. The sum of life-preserving instincts that are manifested as impulses to gratify basic needs such as sex. Eros is where you get the word erotic. It's a lovely word. When it comes down to it, eros is a very selfish love. It's a love that is meant to satisfy your own desires. And so this is a love that makes you say things like, I love this person because... They make me happy because they meet my needs. And it's just as Webster's Dictionary says, it is meant to gratify your own personal needs. And to say that this is real love is to say that a love between a man and a prostitute is real love. 
Because that is the epitome of Eros. The man, he has his needs for sex. The woman, she has her needs for money. So the man gives her what she needs, and she gives him what he needs, and they're done, and they leave. Okay, that is what Eros is. And people would say, oh, they made love. Eros love. In Greek mythology, Eros is the son of Aphrodite. And he is the god of desire and sexual love. And in Roman mythology, do you know his name? Cupid. Cupid, that little guy up there, is Eros. He's that little naked winged guy with the arrows that shoots at people to make them fall in love with others. But the truth is, is that he's no god at all. Cupid's a little demon. (laughs) And Cupid is a little demon that shoots lust at different people and makes them feel that I got to have this or I, I got to die. I'm going to die. I got to have this. And there's no concern for the other person. And when it comes down to it, Eros is what causes people to fall into pornography, fall into masturbation, fall into those other things. It's, it's self-love. The only concern is for yourself. There's no concern for another person. And the world loves Eros. The world loves this type of love. You watch any advertisement, it's all about you. Buy this and you'll be happy. Use this and you'll be happy. And then when you think, oh, it's for another person, like buy this ring for them and they'll be happy, so you'll be happy. You see, it's all about that. Like get this surgery so that they'll like you so that you'll be happy. It's all about you, you, you. It's never about the other person. It's very, very selfish. And the sad thing is that even Webster's Dictionary uh, defines it that way. The world loves it. The world believes this is love. But Webster's Dictionary says it's life-preserving instincts that comes out as impulses to gratify your basic needs. That doesn't sound like love at all. That sounds like selfishness. That sounds like I'm hungry, feed me now with no concern for those who are around you. And so do you know how many times Eros is mentioned in the Greek in the Bible? Zero. Zero. God doesn't mention it once. He doesn't want us to be confused in any way that Eros is the true definition of love. Because really, it's the definition of lust. It is the opposite of love. And while the world tries to say, oh, it's love, oh, they made love last night, oh, those two strangers, they made love, that's not the truth at all. It was really them just satisfying their own needs, them just going after their own desire for attachment or their own desire to fulfill their own lusts. Eros is not love at all. So you can just cross it off. It's not love. Eros. It's selfishness. So we're going to go to the next level in the hierarchy of love. Eros is below the floor. It's not even there. Okay, now the next level of hierarchy is the word philia. And you guys know this word pretty well because our church is named after it. New Philadelphia. Philadelphia means the city of brotherly love. Philia basically means brotherly love or friendship. Friendship. Another word for it is phileo. And in Greek, philos means friend. So when Jesus says, you are my friend, he's basically saying, I love you with brotherly love, with philia love. Philia relates more to the soul than to the body. Okay, it's not so much about your own desires. It's more about a mutual connection. Okay, so an example of philia love would be like if you like a sports team, someone else likes the sports team, you both like the sports team, now you're friends. Now you have that connection. It's not about selfishness, like you serve me because you like your sport, my sports team. It's not like that at all. There's just a mutual connection. There's an enjoyment. And for some people, it comes out in personality. That you know, this person's personality really mixes with mine. There is this connection that we have. There is like this brotherly love, and we enjoy being with each other. 
So it's not so much a selfish love, but it's also not a perfectly pure love either. But God still does use this word to express his love for us. And I want you guys to open up your Bibles to John 16. We're going to see him speak this love over us. John 16, verse 27. says this, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Those two words for love translated in the Greek are philia. It says for the father himself philia you because you have philia'd me and have believed that I came from God. Our father in heaven has a friendship love for you, a brotherly love for you because you have loved me as a brother and as a friend and you've believed that I came from God. You see, God's love, while it's a very high love that we'll speak about in a moment, is also that brotherly love, that friendship love. You have a uniqueness about you that he delights in. You are different from every person around you. All right, every person has a different fingerprint. And so there is a different connection that he has with every son and daughter. And that's where philia love really comes in. A uniqueness, just a special connection. And that's God's love for you. But it's also used in the Greek in negative terms. Uh, it, if you didn't know, when Judas betrayed Jesus, he told the Pharisees, the one whom I kiss is the man. He's the man that I betray. And that word kiss, the literal translation is not kiss at all. It's philia. And what it really means is the man that I show brotherly love to is the one whom I betray. So he betrayed Jesus, not so much with a kiss, but with brotherly love, with that deception. And when Peter, when he was reinstated, After he had denied Jesus three times and Jesus came to him and asked him three times, Simon, do you love me? He responded every time, yes, I love you. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And every time he said, yes, Lord, I philia you. I have brotherly love for you. You see, Peter's love was still not perfected. It was a philia love. It was a friendship love. And so you see it, it is a higher love than Eros, very, very clearly. It's a higher love. It's not based on selfishness. It's based on that connection. But still, this is a love that isn't eternal. And you guys have experienced this love all throughout your life with friends in elementary school, in junior high, in high school, in college, and now. And I'm willing to bet that many of those friends that you had connections with because of sports or because of activities or because of different mutual interests, that now that those interests have come and gone, that the friendship isn't what it once was. It's a bit more distant. The connection is just not really there. Why? It was based on philia love, not an eternal love. Just based on a friendship, based on a connection, a unique likeness for one another. And so I'm going to now share about the true love. Philia is only mentioned 21 times in the New Testament, only 21. And so every other time love is mentioned, it's this other word I'm going to teach you. And philia is only mentioned by God a few times. John 16 was the main one. And when Jesus calls us friend, that was the other. But the rest, it's used by Pharisees, used by Peter, his disciples, in expressing more of an earthly love, a love that they haven't met the true love yet. The true love is, I believe you guys know this word, agape, agape. And I'm going to read the definition of agape, and I want you guys to read along with me. It's 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Uh, There's no timer in the back, I see. Excellent. (laughs) 
You thought since Pastor Christian wasn't here that. <laughs> First Corinthians 13. I'm going to substitute the word love for the real definition, agape. This is agape's definition. It says this, agape is patient and kind. Agape does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Agape does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Agape bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Agape never ends. You see, a simple definition for agape, if you don't want to write all that in your notebook, it's unconditional love. Unconditional love. That is the definition of agape. It's the love that the father had for the prodigal son. It was a love where the arms are always open no matter what happens. A love that, dema- that demands nothing in return. It only gives. It's the love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. That while we were still sinners, while we had done nothing to merit it, he poured out his love for us. He poured out his agape for us. And what is most powerful is found in 1 John 4.16. And it's the definition of God. 1 John 4.16. You don't have to turn to it. You can just write it down. It says God is love. God is love. And the true definition, the true translation of that is God is agape. You see, the true character of God is unconditional love. Now, I know, yeah, he's a God of justice. He's a God of might. He's a God of power. He's a God of peace. He's a God of provision. He's a God of all those things. But what they're all rooted in is agape. It's all rooted in unconditional love. And I want you guys to take that in deep, because if God's love for us is unconditional, then that means his love is free and undemanding. That there is never a moment in our lives where his love is a little less or his love is a little more because of anything that we've done. His love is always the same. It is always so strong and it is always eternal. It's always with us. So I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 13 one more time. And I'm going to read it with the true, true definition, the true, true translation. It reads like this. God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. God is not arrogant or rude. God does not insist on his own way. God is not irritable or resentful. God does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God never ends. I'm going to read it for you again in the NIV, which I know you guys are more familiar with. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God does not boast. God is not proud. God is not rude. God is not self-seeking. God is not easily angered. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. God always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. God never fails. So if that is God's heart, If that is who God is, then how do we receive him? And I want to tell you, it's actually very simple. I'm going to read Romans 5, 5 for you. Romans 5, 5 says this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What Romans 5, 5 really reads is God's agape has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And that's why when we do altar calls and you look around the room, people who have done nothing, they haven't said a prayer. They've just been sitting there. They start to cry. They start to laugh. They start to be touched. And why? Because God's love is never demanding. God's love demands nothing. It's unconditional. And his love is being freely poured out into them. 
See, 1 John 4.19 1 4.19 reads this. We love because God first loved us. And what that really reads is we love unconditionally. We agape because he first agaped us. Because he first showed unconditional love to us. And so I want to ask you, how do you know if you're moving in agape love? Because so often we think, oh, it's selfish. You know, I, I just showed love to my wife because I want to make her smile because I like it when she smiles. You know, things like that. And it, you, is this real love? Is this God's true love? Well, I'll tell you, you know it's God's love when you are praying or you are serving someone where there, there is no selfishness whatsoever. And the easiest example for this is when you pray for the nations. When you, if you pray for North Korea and you start to weep, you start to get touched, you know you're moving in God's agape love. What's North Korea going to give you? What are you going to get out of this? Are people watching you? Do you feel better about yourself? No. It's God's agape love. And you know his love when you pray for someone and you feel a tear going down your cheek. Someone who doesn't even know you or someone who doesn't know you're praying for them. That's when you know God's agape love is just moving through you. And when you are loving others with God's agape love, you're actually demonstrating him to them. Because God is love. God is agape. So when you agape, when you love unconditionally, when you agape, you, you God. Okay, that might sound weird, but you God. You see, you're God's hands and his feet. Well, how does that work? Does that mean we, we praise and we do services and we do different things and that demonstrates that we're God's hands and feet? Does that mean we have to fulfill a bunch of you know, rites and rituals and do different things, read our Bible, and we're God's hands and feet? No. People don't recognize this as holy or set apart by those things. They recognize this by our love. They will know you are Christians by your love. They will know who you are by your agape. And when you agape, when you show unconditional love to someone, they are meeting God. They are seeing God. Because this world is filled with eros. This world is filled with selfishness. And this world knows it. And people know it. That, oh, you're only out for your own good. You're only, you're only doing this because you want to feel good about yourself. Or you're only doing this because you want to satisfy your own needs. And when they meet people who love sacrificially, who give sacrificially, it, it blows their mind. It's unworldly. It's something so different that, that they just can't relate to. They're meeting God. They're meeting the definition of love. And so we have three Greek words. Eros, philia, and agape. And now you know that the true definition of love is agape. It's unconditional. It is pure. It's patient. It's kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. It never ends. It never fails. This is the love where those friends that I mentioned from elementary school and junior high and high school, that if you still have a connection with them, it's usually because your friendship was based on this. That it doesn't matter whether you like the same sports team or you both play tennis or something like that. It's because you both have that agape love in your hearts. So when you meet, that connection is there. That care and that concern is there. And that's why you know there's certain people that you might not have seen for years, but you can call them up at any time of the night and say, hey, I need your help. And they'll be right there for you. Why? Because their love isn't selfish. Their love isn't based on just some connection, some meeting. Their love is based on unconditional love. Their love is pure. And they'll be right there for you. They're demonstrating God's heart. Because God is always there for you. And God will always be there when you need him. So before I close, I want us to go back to the beginning of identity and how that affects how we're able to receive God's agape love. And I want you guys right now, 
to just close your eyes across the room. You're going to keep your eyes closed for a few minutes. So pinch yourself if you're sleepy. I'm actually going to invite the praise team to come up. I have a bit more to share. I'm not done yet, but note-taking is done. I want you guys to close your eyes, and I want you guys to just imagine yourself, and you're standing in heaven by yourself, and you're standing before God. And I want you to think, just what do I look like as I stand before God? What do I look like? What are your emotions? What are you feeling? And I also want you, want you to think, how does God see you? Just pretend that you're looking upon God, looking upon the Father. How does He see you? What is the expression on His face? For some of you, I think some of you guys are, are getting blessed right now. Because you know your identity. But for others, and for many, it can be a struggle. There can be a feeling that, yeah, he loves me, but. I, I feel good, but. You know, he's looking with distaste about this thing in my life. Or, or he's looking at me, you know, in this way because of something else in my life. And I'm going to share with you guys a story right now. And it's, it's a bit of a heavy story. But it's going to help you understand more about your identity before God and how he sees you. And this story is from back in 2005, and uh, it is, it's a tough story, it's a sad story. But uh, my sister, she'd been married for six years, and um, go ahead and keep your eyes closed. Uh, and she was pregnant for the first time, and it was a big celebration that she had finally gotten pregnant. They had been trying for some time. And uh, the, the boy uh, was developing really well, and they named him Clayton. But at the six-month mark, uh, Katie miscarried, my sister miscarried. And uh, it was a very tragic time. The baby had, had almost fully developed already. And so she had to deliver Clayton, uh, who had already passed. And uh, it was a, just a deep time of grieving and of mourning. And it was just a couple weeks after the miscarriage that my dad went to sleep one night. And he had a dream. And in this dream, he was lifted up. And I just want you to imagine what my dad saw. He was lifted up. And before him was a sheet. And the sheet was then lifted before him. And it was bright white. And he, of course, knew where he was. It's just this bright white all around him, this beautiful shimmering white. And as he looked before him, there were three children who were playing on the ground. And they were just happily playing with each other. And when he looked closely, he recognized two of them. And to the left, it was um, my grandfather, Vic, my grandpa, Vic. And when my dad looked closely at, at Vic, he saw him at every age. He could see Vic in his old age right before he passed away. He could see him in, in his 40s, and his 30s. He could see him as a teenager. But most of all, my dad saw him as a little child. That was how my, my dad saw him in heaven, just as a young, happy child. And when my dad looked at the girl in the, in the middle, he recognized it was his own grandmother, my great-grandmother, who had passed away long ago. And as he looked closely, again, he could see her in her whole lifespan. He could see her in, in, in just, you know, in, in, as a teenager in pictures he had never seen of her before, but he could see her in that way. But most of all, he saw her as just a little 
happy child playing right there. And then when he looked upon the third child, he he didn't recognize uh, the child at first, but he saw that the boy resembled me and resembled my brother-in-law's brother. And then he realized that that little boy that was playing was Clayton. And as soon as he recognized Clayton, seeing his whole lifespan, who Clayton was meant to be, Clayton just jumped up from where he was playing and ran to my dad. And he came to my dad with just the biggest smile on his face. And he said to my dad, it is so wonderful here. It is so wonderful. And my dad woke up. And my dad just kept it in his heart that day. And he went to work. And then later he was speaking with his mom. And she was just expressing her grief over Clayton's passing. And she said to my dad, you know, I just know that that Vic is up there in heaven and he's playing with little Clayton. And my dad knew she was speaking the truth. And I know God released that dream more than anything to bring healing and comfort to my dad and to my sister and, and just to the family through that time to know that Clayton was safe, that he was up there in heaven and that, that he was just so filled with joy. But also as I reflected on that dream, I began to realize how God sees us. You see, he sees us as little children. God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, who made time and and everything, he's not bound by any of it. And scripture says that he formed us in our mother's womb. And all the days ordained for us were written in his book before one of them came to be. That he knows you. He knew you as a baby. He knew you as a little child. He knew you as a teenager. He knows you now. He knows you as a 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 50-year-old, as a grandfather, a grandmother. He knows you, your whole lifespan. He sees you. He sees your sins. He sees your failures. He sees your successes. He sees all the things that the world will try and shape you by, will try and put on you as identity. But you know, he sees through all of that. You see, he's not bound by time. And most of all, he sees you the way he meant you to be, as a child, pure and holy in his sight. And for some of you, maybe even as a child, you know, you sinned and, and, and you, you struggled and, and you know, you, you weren't the best. But he sees you even before that. He sees you as pure. So I want to ask you again, as you keep your eyes closed. How does God see you? How do you see yourself before God? What's the expression on God's face as he looks upon you? How much does he care for you? There is nothing you can do to make him love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you less. The same love that a father and a mother has for their baby, and has for their young child, he has for you. And it's an unconditional love. It's a love that demands nothing in return. It's a love that sees dreams, that sees hope, that sees beauty. A love that causes the father and the mother to delight in their child. To have so much hope and joyful expectation in knowing that this is their own. 
But your identity is not in this world. Your identity isn't in your mother and your father here on earth. Your identity is in your father in heaven who made you in his image. He made you perfectly. He set you apart. And he claimed you by the blood of Jesus, by that unconditional love, by that agape. He set you apart. And because he chose you, there's nothing you can do to get away from him. You're safe. You are secure. And his love is always for you. His love is for you right now. And he is speaking his love over you. And you, we just need to let go of our fear. And let go of our guilt. Let go of our sin. Let go of just our pride of everything that is holding us back. Church, I want you to just repeat these words after me. Father, I need you. Father, I need your love. And I open my heart. And I give you my fear. I give you my insecurities. I give you my pride. I give you my desires. And I declare you are good. You are love. You are agape. And you love me. Church, I want us to just all rise right now and I want us to just sing God's love and give Him glory. And just, you know, if, if you're receiving right now, just continue to receive and hear God's song over you.